Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 11 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. There's a name for people like you. Doppelganger. I have an albino doppelganger. He's a pale imitation. I chased Dr. Jekyll once. He could run, but he couldn't hide. <laughs> a mystifying doppelganger story tonight from J.C. Fields. Let's get after it. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is an 1886 Gothic novella by Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson. The story is of a man who tries to purge his evil side from his persona by creating a potion that produces a murderous doppelganger, Mr. Hyde. In the following story, our intrepid and former down-on-his-luck hitman Shorty Small is about to meet a different, more sinister doppelganger. When he and Claire are invited to a fancy formal dinner, they meet a man full of southern charm and money. The man is tasking Shorty to find the individual who is predicting dreadful tragedies and crimes to befall New Orleans. Shorty will find he needs all the tricks he learned as a hitman to survive this latest challenge. And now for your indulgence, The Doppelganger by J.C. Fields. Shorty Small, a man neither short nor small, sipped coffee in the Café Brioche a few blocks from his house, another morning meeting with his contact from the tourism board. He saw the tall, lanky man burst through the front door and scan the diners. He spotted Shorty and made a beeline toward the table. Small glanced at his watch and noted Homer LaCroix was actually two minutes early. The Cajun sat across from Small and said breathlessly, Y'all can't complain today. I'm on time. Barely. Taking another sip of his coffee, the big man said, What's the board's request today? LaCroix pulled an envelope out of the breast pocket of his linen sport coat. You and Claire have been invited to a formal dinner tonight with a potential major benefactor. I don't do formal. You have a suit, don't you? With a chuckle, Small shook his head. Haven't owned one in years. It's not easy to find a suit that fits me. Smiling, LaCroix pulled another envelope out and handed it to the big man. I told the board you would protest. They didn't care. This guy has pledged millions to the board. They are asking. No, that's not correct. Demanding you to indulge him with an appearance. Here's the address of a tailor who will fit you this morning and have the suit ready by mid-afternoon. I'm not buying a suit I'll only wear once, Homer. The suit's being paid for by the board, Shorty. This is an important meeting. They're expecting you to meet with him. Whatever. He picked up the envelope and felt the cash within. What's the money for? Thought you said the suit was paid for. The suit is. 
to ask for Claire to buy a new dress. Rolling his eyes, Small stood. I take it the time and place are on the invitation. A nod from LaCroix. Small narrowed his eyes. Okay, if it makes the board happy, tell them we'll be there. Claire Honoré straightened the tie on her fiancé. There, you look extremely handsome tonight. Be careful, I might tear that suit off and have my way with you. Small frowned as he looked in a full-length mirror in their bedroom. This is ridiculous. I look like a bouncer in this thing. How am I supposed to breathe? The tie's too tight. Stop whining. You'll get used to it. Now, tell me how I look. Taking his gaze from his own image in the mirror, he turned toward Claire. The long formal dress with a side split to her thigh fit perfectly. The plunging neckline highlighted her ample cleavage and helped emphasize her natural curves. He said, You sure you want to go out in public looking like that? She frowned. You liked it in the dress shop? I didn't say I don't like it. I just don't want some horny old man falling in lust with you. With a chuckle, she admired herself in the mirror. I haven't felt this elegant in a long time. You always look elegant. The dress just draws attention to it. Placing her hand on his cheek, she looked up at him. You're sweet. He mumbled. Yeah, yeah. Claire picked up her clutch bag and said, Do you know what this dinner is all about? Nope. How many guests are invited? Homer didn't say. What do you know about it? All I know is that the tourism board pays good money for my services, and this guy is talking about donating a lot of money to the board. They want us to meet with him tonight. She patted him on the chest. Then we'd better get going. We don't want to be late. The maitre d' of the high-end restaurant, named after the celebrity chef who owned it, escorted Small and Claire through the busy main dining area toward the rear of the establishment. As they approached the private dining area, the man said, Mr. Dubois is expecting you, Mr. Small and Lady Honoré. He opened the door and allowed them to enter. Small started to hand the man a tip, but Claire touched his hand and shook her head slightly. He smiled and said, oh, Thank you, sir. My pleasure. The door closed behind them and they were shown into a cozy, rough-hewn, beamed room. A waiter stood off to the side and smiled as they entered. He said, Mr. Dubois will return momentarily. Please have a seat. He gestured toward the only table in the room. Small and Claire sat in two of the four chairs. May I get you both a cocktail? A crystal tumbler half full of an amber liquid could be seen across from Small. Pointing toward the glass, the big man asked, What's Mr. Dubois having? Glenfiddich, neat. Small asked, What do you want, Claire? She smiled at the waiter. Chardonnay, please. The man nodded and turned to Shorty. Sir? Jack and Coke. Very good, sir. The waiter disappeared through a door to their left. Well, Claire, looks like we're the only guests. I kind of figured that out. Just as she finished her sentence, the door opened and a tall man dressed in a suit similar to Small's entered. He smiled and extended his hand. I've heard a lot about you, Shortish Small. It is a pleasure to finally meet you. Small stood and shook the man's hand. Nice to meet you, Mr. Dubois. He gestured toward Claire. This is my fiance, Claire Honoré. After all the pleasantries and the new drinks were served, Dubois said, I assume you're curious as to the nature of our meeting. Figured you'd bring it up at some point. I've been told you are a patient man. I, on the other hand, am not. He paused and took a sip of his scotch. Have you ever heard of a doppelganger, Mr. Small? I have. What do you know about them? Tilting his head slightly, Small said, Encountering someone who resembles you to a large degree. That's one aspect of the term. After taking a long drink of his Jack and Coke, Small raised an eyebrow. So you're saying there's more than one aspect of them? 
The board tells me you are their top problem solver. What kind of problems do you solve? The kind the police can't handle. I see, he paused. Have you ever read Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? No, can't say that I have. Small turned to Claire. Have you read it? She nodded, took a sip of her wine, and kept her gaze fixed on Dubois. Their host continued. It's the story of a man who discovers a way to release the inner strength within himself. Eventually, that strength intensifies the evil within and takes over the man's life. Okay. There's another piece to the term doppelganger. A creature who can take on the appearance of another and does evil in their name. There is even a series of novels depicting vampires as doppelgangers. Small leaned back, arms still folded. Do you believe in vampires, Mr. Dubois? The man studied his scotch glass and twisted it clockwise, then counterclockwise. He looked up at Small. You have successfully thwarted more than one supernatural occurrence here in New Orleans, haven't you, Mr. Small? A shrug came from the big man's shoulders. Well, you have. He sipped his scotch. I have been briefed about your efforts. He paused for a few moments and then reached into his suit coat pocket and handed Small an envelope. I received this two days ago. Tell me what you think. Small opened the envelope and extracted a folded sheet of paper. He read, Monsieur Dubois, please give the following the attention and seriousness it requires. Your beloved city of New Orleans is about to endure a series of dreadful tragedies and crimes, all perpetuated by someone who will look exactly like you. Your doppelganger, so to speak. This outbreak of unspeakable occurrences will be directly linked to your own unscrupulous business practices in the past and present. I will not reveal when or where these incidences will start, nor will I tell you what they will be, but you will know them when they occur. Vivo Gladio Moriatur Gladio. Small looked up from the note. Live by the sword, die by the sword? Ah, you know your Latin. I'm impressed. Don't be. My mom was a Latin teacher and I have a good memory. He handed the note back to Dubois. I take it you don't have any idea who sent the letter. Not a clue. In fact, I truly don't know what business practices he's referring to. I started out as an oil rig operator for a wildcatter in the Gulf when I was in my early 20s. He took me under his wing for a number of years and I took over the operation when he died of a heart attack. I was 30. Frowning, Small asked, Did he have any kids? Dubois started to answer, but the waiter entered to take their dinner order. When he left, the man downed his remaining scotch. When I got the note, I thought the same thing, so I hired a detective. He found the man was married to his work and rarely left the platform. No family. Brothers or sisters? None the detective could find. Small drained his Jack and Coke and then studied the man sitting across from him. Why are you telling me this information, Mr. Dubois? The man chuckled. I have met a few members of the tourism board who believe you to be a bit dull-witted, Mr. Small. I think it's your size that perpetuates the image. I, on the other hand, find you to be intelligent and resourceful. I like surrounding myself with men like yourself. You didn't answer the question. A sly grin appeared on the man's lips. No, I didn't. The waiter appeared with a tumbler of Glenfiddich for Dubois and another round for Shorty and Claire. Dubois said, That's why I chose this place for our meeting. Discreet and private. He took a sip of his fresh drink. The answer to your question is simple. I did a little research on you, short as small. The big man's eyebrows rose. You did, huh? You are a hunter. That's what I need. A hunter to find the person who wrote this note. I don't do that anymore. I know, but I need someone with your skill set to, let's say, look into it. 
Small only stared at Dubois. Since you are now officially a consultant with the New Orleans Police Department, I would like for you to find out what they know. I work for the tourism board, Mr. Dubois. Yes, I know, but they would like for you to do this little favor for me. What's happened? The first of these tragedies foretold in the note has already occurred. The police are keeping details from the public because of the sheer violence of the act. Only you have the clearance to learn the details. Shorty Small studied the man across from him as he sipped his Jack and Coke. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> this is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. If you're like us here at Chilling Tales and enjoy feeling your stomach filling with dread as dastardly demons dance in your head, make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe now to always be the first to enjoy the horror show. The following morning. Small used his ID badge to open the electronic lock to the inner sanctum of the New Orleans Police Department. His trek through the detective department ended as he walked into an office with the open door. Captain Lance LeCompte smiled, stood, and offered his hand as Small approached his desk. Shorty, why am I not surprised to see you this morning? As they shook, Small said, I had a weird meeting last night. I have those all the time. Did it have to do with the police department? The tourism board is worried about something your department is not telling the public. LeCompte's eyebrows drew together and he started to say something, but paused. After taking a breath, he said, And they felt the need for you to ask us. You know the board. They're worried about rumors hurting the city's tourism. Can you tell me about it? What did they say to you? No specifics, but I was told it was pretty horrific. LeCompte pursed his lips. Something did happen, and there's an internal debate about how much information we should release to the public. Crossing his arms, Small asked, That bad? The captain nodded. Since you are an official consultant, I can tell you. One of the worst murders we've ever seen in this city. Really? Small sat in a wooden chair placed in front of the captain's desk. He kept his attention on the man and leaned forward in the chair, his hands clasped, elbows resting on his knees. Standing, LeCompte went to a shelf and pulled a loose-leaf notebook out and returned to his desk. He placed the binder facing Small and opened it to a specific page. The image made the hardened former hitman involuntarily gasp. That's the same reaction our detectives had as well. Pulling the book closer to him, he studied the picture. He looked up. When did this happen? Body was discovered Sunday night. Autopsy indicates he had been dead for at least 36 hours. Any ID? LeCompte shook his head. Sitting straighter, Small placed his elbows on the arms of the chair and made a steeple with his hands. He tapped his lips twice. Since the victim is hanging upside down and his head has been severed, let me guess, no blood remained in the body. Correct. Was any found at the scene? 
Very little. A drop here and another drop there. Do your detectives think he was killed elsewhere and then transferred to where the photo was taken? No, they think the victim was strung up first and then decapitated. Where's the head? Turn to Paige. Small did and saw several photos. Looking up at the captain, he said, Damn, that's gruesome. Our reaction as well. The captain paused. Tips of his fingers were surgically removed, along with his eyes and all his teeth. Continuing to study the picture, Small asked, DNA? Currently at the crime lab, but someone's profile has to be in the database for it to be identified. Any security cameras where the body was found? You're asking the right questions, Shorty. Yes, but the face is blurred. Our technology unit couldn't clean it up. Do you want me to look into the matter? Shorty, we know you have sources we don't have. If you would, well, we'd appreciate it. Standing, Small gave the man a grim smile and turned to leave. Before he could exit, LeCompte cleared his throat. <clears throat> uh, Shorty. Turning, he said, yeah. Security tape indicate the assailant was eight feet tall. Huh. Tulane University. Waiting patiently for the woman inside the classroom to finish her lecture, Small leaned against the wall opposite the door. He could see her gesturing to the whiteboard behind her and then return her attention to the students in the class. She glanced out the door window several times. On each occasion, she displayed a slight smile. At five minutes to the top of the hour, the students filed out of the classroom. When the last disappeared down the hall, she exited the room and grabbed Small's elbow. So good to see you, Shorty. It's been a while. It's good to see you as well, Dr. Fowler. She looked up at the tall man escorting her. When are you going to start calling me Carmen? Soon as I earn a PhD. So, probably never? What are the odds? She chuckled. I have a couple of hours before my next class. Let's go to my office and talk. That's what I hoped we could do. Five minutes later, they were in her cluttered office. She busied herself moving books off the small conference table and then motioned for Small to sit. The cleaning I started the last time you visited has not progressed much. Place looks fine to me. She patted his arm. Aren't you sweet? Pausing for a few moments, she asked, What can I do for you today? Since your PhD is in anthropology, maybe you can point me in the right direction. I'll try. I've learned in my short time here in New Orleans to question my normal skepticism of myths. That's good, Shorty. You're opening your mind to new ideas. Reluctantly, he paused. What about New Orleans and vampires? She stood and went to one of her many overflowing bookshelves. She searched the titles and extracted two different volumes. She placed them on the conference table, sat and tapped one with her index finger. New Orleans has a long and storied relationship with vampires. In 1932, the Carter brothers were discovered keeping victims in their house tied to chairs with their cuts bandaged. All were half dead and the brothers would open their wounds each evening and drain blood into a cup from which they drank. They were only discovered after a young girl managed to escape the house and inform police. Numerous deceased bodies were hidden throughout their residence. The brothers were tried as serial killers, convicted, and eventually executed. Huh, thought vampires were immortal. Dr. Fowler shrugged. I believe Hollywood had some influence there. What about doppelgangers? Not following you, shorty. What does anthropology say about doppelgangers? She smiled. Anthropology does not address doppelgangers in the scientific sense. However, folklore is awash with legends and mythologies about them. So, to answer your question, legend has it that doppelgangers are said to have no shadow or reflections similar to vampires. Why do you ask? So, are vampires also doppelgangers? In literature, they can be. L.J. Smith's The Vampire Diaries tells us of vampire doppelgangers. But not folklore. 
Who's to say L.J. Smith's story isn't folklore? Doctor, you're not making sense. Carmen Fowler laughed. Shorty, folklore and fiction are both considered untrue. The only difference is folklore can sometimes be traced back to actual events. Fiction is purely the imagination of the author. But I'm not sure there's a difference. She tilted her head. What's happened? Let's put it this way. A man was found hanging upside down. All the blood had been drained from the body. The severed head was found not far away with both eyes surgically removed. Her hand shot up to cover her mouth as she gasped. Oh dear. Does that sound like a vampire? Not one I've ever heard or read about. What about doppelgangers? Do they kill like that? She shook her head. Not that I'm aware of. Doppelgangers are portrayed in German folklore as a ghostly or paranormal beings and are usually seen as a harbinger of misfortune and bad luck. The word literally translates to double walker or double goer. But can they be evil at the same time, Doctor? I suppose. Carmen closed the book. That question is a little beyond my expertise. If I were you, I'd speak to your friend the gypsy. I was afraid you'd mention her. Thanks, Dr. Fowler. Lying in bed later, Small stared at the ceiling, hands behind his head. Claire rose to one elbow, glanced at the digital clock on the nightstand, and said, It's 2.17 in the morning and you've not yet slept. What's wrong, Shorty? Thinking. About? Moving to Australia? She chuckled. You are not. He reached over and drew her into a hug. She rested her head on his chest. The thoughts crossed my mind a few times since I moved. But you're here, so I guess I'm staying. That's good. Want to talk about it? I'm not sure what I'm dealing with here, Claire. I need to go out and see Madame Adriana tomorrow. She wrapped her free arm across his chest and held him tighter. Be careful. I don't like you venturing into the swamp. I don't like going out there either, but that's where she lives, so what can I do? They lay in each other's arms for a few minutes. She kissed his chest and let her hand slip down his chest toward his waist and below. Henry Dumont placed his hands on his hips and smiled as the big man exited the Ford Escape. With a wave, he yelled, Hey, shorty, haven't seen you in a while. How's it going, Henry? Going all right. After the two men shook hands, Dumont asked, You needing to see Madame Adriana today? Afraid I do. Heard a rumor they broke camp and moved. Small frowned with this revelation. For sure or just rumor? Dumont shrugged. But gypsies, you never know. I personally haven't been out there since the last time you dragged me along. How much to rent your airboat? For you, friend, family discount. Just bring it back in one piece. Thanks, Henry. An hour later, Small surveyed the vacant island deep within the swamp. He tied the airboat to a tree and stepped onto dry land. It had been a while since his last visit, but he knew which of the abandoned shacks housed Madame Adriana. He stepped inside and found the interior as empty as the village. Nothing remained of her decorative pillows or colorful tapestries. Sensing something behind him, he turned to see a figure staring at him. You are in danger, Shorty Small. The surprise of seeing Madame Adriana standing in the open front door startled the big man. I thought your family left Louisiana. We did, but I sensed you needed my counsel, so here I am. You just said I was in danger, Madame Adriana. What did you mean? Do not trust the strange man who asks favors of you. He is not who you think he is. You and your woman are in grave danger. Take cautions. Only believe what you see. You must utilize your past experiences to find to overcome this evil. With these words, she turned and disappeared from sight. Small rushed out of the empty shack to catch her, but she was nowhere to be seen. As he stood there, a cold breeze swept past him in the stifling hot humid air. Damn. Small picked Claire up after classes at the university and they arrived home a little after eight in the evening. 
An ancient Oldsmobile station wagon sat parked on the curb in front of their house. Small could see the profile of a driver, but no details. He parked the escape inside the garage and said, Go inside and lock the doors. I'll check this out. Be careful. He reached under his seat and extracted his Glock 21. Exiting the car, he held the pistol in his right hand behind his back while he walked toward the parked vehicle. A tall man stepped out and stood in the glow of a street lamp. Small recognized him as one of Madame Adriana's sons. He secured the Glock inside his waistband at the small of his back. He approached the man who stood at the end of the driveway. The man said, Mr. Small? Yes. I am Robert Sylvanus. Madame Adriana was my mother. Yes, Robert, I recognize you. I understand your family move. He paused, realizing the meaning of the man's words. You said was. Has something happened? Yes, I'm here to bring you sad news. Small remained quiet. My mother passed away six weeks ago. He offered a box he held toward Small. She was very fond of you and wanted to make sure you received this. I'm sorry for your loss, Robert. He accepted the package. It felt heavier than he expected. What is it? The gypsy smiled. My mother packed it when she realized her time was short. I do not know the contents. Uh, Robert, you said Madame Adriana passed away six weeks ago? Yes. Taking a deep breath, the man let it out slowly. Did she die before you left? No, shortly after. She did not like the swamp and did not want to die there. I can understand her desire not to do so. I am sorry to bring you this news, but we felt you should know. Thank you, and I'm sorry for your loss. The younger man nodded, turned, walked back to his station wagon, and drove away. Small watched him disappear into the night. Then who the hell spoke to me at the old shack? He walked back to the garage, hit the button to close the door, and went inside. Who was that, Shorty? Madame Adriana's son. He told me she died six weeks ago. He placed the box on the kitchen table. She wanted me to have whatever is in this box. I thought you told me you spoke to her in the swamp. I did. Oh, dear, Shorty. She remained quiet as she stared at the box. What could be in it? She didn't tell her son. Guess I need to open it and find out. Extracting a folding knife from his pants pocket, he opened it and slit the tape holding the top of the carton closed. Moving the flaps aside, he saw an ornately hand-carved rosewood box. He lifted it from the cardboard container. It's beautiful, Shorty. Yes, it is. Raising the box to eye level, he searched the sides for any booby traps. Seeing none, he set it back down and released the latch holding it shut. The first item he saw was an envelope addressed to him in a bold calligraphy script. He extracted a folded piece of parchment paper from within. The same handwriting appeared on the sheet. Shorty Small, I have enjoyed our conversations and wish you the best with your pending marriage to Claire Honoré. You will have two beautiful children together. But first, you must get past your next challenge. This one will be more difficult than your previous encounters with spirits from the other side. I would have come to see you before we departed the swamp, but my strength diminished with each passing day. I needed to lead our clan to a safer location and thus did not take the time to visit you in person. I give you this box carved by my husband. Use the contents to keep you, your future wife, and family safe. Madame Adriana. He looked at his future wife. She says we'll have two kids. Claire smiled. I knew I liked her. Looking inside the container, he found a leather-bound journal held closed by a strap of similar material. He carefully undid the belt and opened the book. What is this, Shorty? He skimmed through the pages, stopping occasionally to read closer. Finally, he looked up and said, it appears to be her personal diary. 
Plus, it looks like it contains medicinal recipes, ancient spells, and secrets she wanted me to know about. The cell phone vibrated and danced across the top of the nightstand. Small grabbed it and checked the caller ID. It read NOPD. He accepted the call. Small. The voice of Captain Lance LeCompte said, We have another one. How fast can you get here? Where's here? Jackson Square. Twenty minutes. The call ended and Small placed his feet on the floor. Claire mumbled, It's 2.45 in the morning, Shorty. What's wrong? Don't know, but I have to meet Captain LeCompte in Jackson Square. She sat and watched him pull on a pair of jeans. With a heavy sigh, she said, Do not leave your gun in the car, Shorty. Wasn't planning on it. Lay back down and get some sleep. I'll be back as soon as I can. He pulled on a polo shirt and then leaned over and kissed her. Grabbing socks and athletic shoes, he headed for the front room. Five minutes later, he backed out of the garage and headed toward the French Quarter. The flashes of police emergency lights were visible several blocks away as Small negotiated Decatur Street on his way toward Jackson Square. When he stopped behind one of the multiple police cars, he noticed a large section of the park partitioned off with yellow crime scene tape. Spotlights illuminated the prominent statue of Andrew Jackson on horseback in the center of the park. A tarp draped over the figure of Jackson hid something underneath. Detectives scurried around the monument. An EMT ambulance sat off to the side, two responders standing in front of it with their arms crossed. Lecomte met Small before he could get to the restricted area surrounding the monument. Thanks for coming, Shorty. Small kept his eyes on the statue. Who's under the tarp? Another victim, similar to the first one. One arm holding onto the iron figure of Jackson, the other arm holds the victim's head. The body is tied to Jackson to keep it from falling off. Male or female? This one's a middle-aged woman. Small looked around to all the security cameras trained on the area. What about security camera images? Well, one would think with all the cameras trained on the area, there'd be a good image of the killer. I'm guessing there isn't. You'd be correct. Not one. All the cameras experienced interference starting at exactly 1 a.m. ending at 1.42 a.m. When the interference stops, the body could be seen sitting behind Jackson. First responders got here at 2.05. We have no idea how. Whoever did this placed the body up there and escaped without being seen. There were numerous homeless folks around, and none saw a thing. Small stared at the covered statue. When will you have the body down? As soon as they finish taking pictures and get the civilians cleared out. Small folded his arms. Captain, do you mind if I look at the security videos? Be my guest. He pointed to the major crime van. I've got a detective and a technician going over them now. The first glimpse of dawn brightened the eastern horizon as Small watched one particular security camera video for the third time. His years as a hitman, waiting in uncomfortable locations for the appearance of his quarry, honed his skill to notice obscure, sometimes inconsequential images. Stop the video and return to timestamp 1257. Lecompte, standing next to him, asked, What did you see? An anomaly. The captain frowned. What kind of anomaly? Small leaned over and watched the monitor closely. There, Lisa, stop the video and enhance the bottom right quadrant. The technician nodded and did. If I enlarge it too much more, Shorty, I'll lose pixel integrity. Okay, hold it right there. He pointed to a vertical line near a grove of trees. What does that look like? The captain leaned over and studied the image. A man hiding within the trees. That's your suspect. Start the video again, please. She did, and just before the image dissolved, the figure raised his right arm. As soon as it did, the picture turned to static. Small straightened. Which camera is this video from, Lisa? The one on Decatur Street looking toward St. Louis Cathedral. Looking over at LeCompte, he said, Whoever he is came in from the southeast. You might want to check other security cameras on that side of the square. 
Without saying a word, the captain left the interior of the van and disappeared into the grayish light of early morning. Back it up to just before we lose the images and pause it, please. When she did, Small leaned over again. He stood still for several moments. Do you have a measuring tape in here? On the counter behind you. Turning, Small saw what he needed and exited the van. Using the reference points he spotted on the monitor, he walked to the area where the figure appeared. When he was confident he stood in the right spot, he used the measuring tape. Back in the van, he kept his discovery quiet and waited for LeCompte to return. Thirty minutes elapsed before the captain stepped back into the interior of the crime scene van. He handed Lisa a flash drive and asked, Can we please see the video on this? When the new images appeared on the screen, they saw a tall man carrying a duffel bag across Decatur Street and then disappear from the camera angle. That's the only one we can find that captures someone moving around Jackson Square. Does he look familiar, Shorty? Yes, he does. Who is it? The rich guy I had dinner with the other night. His name is Marcel Dubois. I've heard of him, but never met him. There's only one problem with the ID, Captain. What's that? Marcel Dubois is only five foot eight inches tall. He pointed to the image on the screen. If you use reference points, you'll see whoever that individual might be is right at eight feet tall. LeCompte folded his arms. Not following you, Shorty. Lisa, please replay the video we were originally watching to when the figure raises his right arm. She did. Pointing to the figure, Small said, See that branch just above his head? The captain nodded. Small continued, That branch is eight feet off the ground. This individual's head is almost touching it. Tulane University Claire's schedule at the university would keep her on campus until 7.30 in the evening. Clutching the leather-bound journal given to him by Madame Adriana, he sequestered himself at a table in the reference area of the library. He sat by himself. A young library assistant, Marcy, aided his search for more detailed information on various mythical creatures supposedly inhabiting North America. One was called a Wendigo. While he pored over several reference volumes, she brought an old book and placed it next to him. Shorty, this book explains why the Wendigo stays in the northern states where the weather is cooler. Reaching for the book, he read the passage she indicated. Huh. He read further in silence, then looked up at her. Marcy, this doesn't fit the description of what I saw the other night. She sat across from him. What about a Rougarou? I know what they look like. This isn't a Rougarou. The young assistant sat quietly for a moment. There is something else. He smiled. Tell me. You said the tall creature resembled this Marcel Dubois individual? In a way, what are you thinking? This will sound crazy. I like crazy. Go on. What if this Marcel Dubois is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Not following you. Wouldn't the Mr. Hyde character retain some of the physical traits of the original person? Small kept his attention on the young woman, but kept quiet. I know that sounds ridiculous. Sorry I even suggested it. Don't be sorry. You might be onto something here. He glanced at his watch. Small stood. I've got to meet Claire. Thanks for the idea, Marcy. Late that night, while Claire slept, Small took Madame Adriana's journal to the kitchen table and studied it. By the time the sun peaked over the horizon hours later, he rubbed his weary eyes with the palms of his hands. Claire appeared in the doorway. How long have you been up? Since three. He stood and walked to the coffee maker. Now that you're up, I'll make coffee. What have you learned? I should have stayed in Chicago. We can always move there. He chuckled as he scooped ground coffee into a paper filter. Not likely. So what are you going to do? Talk to Marcel Dubois. At ten that morning, Small was escorted into the ornate office of Marcel Dubois. He stood and shook the larger man's hand. Please sit. What can I do for you, shorty? Small did not sit, choosing to stand. I'm not planning to take much of your time, Mr. Dubois. I just wanted to confirm something. 
And that is... How often did you consult with Madame Adriana? I have no idea who you're talking about. Sure you do. She was the leader of a band of gypsies who lived out in the swamp until about three months ago. According to her journal, you met with her several times. The businessman folded his arms. You reimbursed her substantially for her advice, although I doubt you told her the real reason you sought her guidance. And what was I supposedly asking her guidance about? Small gave the man a slight smile. How to transform yourself into an eight-foot-tall doppelganger? You're delusional. Am I? What about all the security videos that captured your image around Jackson Square? Dubois folded his arms and frowned. Did I mention she's dead? The man's eyes grew wide for a brief moment and then returned to a disinterested expression. I don't see why that would be a concern of mine. Normally, I would agree with you, but in this case, you're lying through your teeth. She's the one who gave you the potion. What do you call yourself when you're eight foot tall? This conversation is over, Mr. Small. I will inform the tourism board that I plan to cancel my pledge of financial support as long as you remain associated with them. Shorty Small turned to leave. He opened the door and looked over his shoulder at the man. I'm sure the mayor and the police chief will be interested in your activities over the past month. He left before Dubois could comment. Shorty, why do I suddenly need to visit my sister in Dallas? Because it's not safe for you here in New Orleans at the moment. And why is it not safe? Because I uncovered something I was not supposed to know. The faster I can get you out of here, the better. What if I refuse? Small's mouth twitched. I'll drive you to Dallas myself. He paused. Claire, I need you out of town before the sun sets. I have classes this evening and tomorrow morning. Tomorrow's Friday. You'll be back by Sunday. Promise. She folded her arms. I'll agree with you if you tell me the reason. Taking a deep breath, he let it out in a sigh. Because the man we had dinner with the other night is not who he claims to be. I know who he is, and he'll come after you to get to me. You're not making any sense, Shorty. Looking at the ceiling, Small shook his head. I'm not sure I believe this myself, but before she died, Marcel Dubois obtained from Madame Adriana the secret of transforming himself into a Jekyll and Hyde-type creature. An evil doppelganger, for lack of a better word. Why would she do that? I believe she was duped into assisting him. I found references to Dubois in her journal. Then I learned the identity of the female victim with the drained blood and severed head. The police identified her yesterday. Her name was familiar. So I planned to call some of my contacts in Chicago about her tonight. Her brow furrowed. Why would he kill them, and in such a horrific fashion? To throw the police off his trail. Plus, he hired me to find the guy, further spreading doubt on his guilt. He paused. So, Claire, that is why I really need you to visit your sister in Dallas. What about you? I read Madame Adriana's journal last night. I know the guy's secret. Three hours later, Small watched the plane, with Claire on board, take off from Louis Armstrong New Orleans International Airport for the hour and a half flight to Dallas. When the plane disappeared on a northwestern flight path, he returned to his SUV for the next phase of his plan. The home of Marcel Dubois reminded Small of a hotel in the French Quarter. A corner building in an older neighborhood, its location a few blocks outside the boundaries of the historic district. Two stories in height, a gallery supported by poles, surrounded the second story. Using tricks learned during his days as a paid assassin to stay hidden, Small kept his attention trained on the old building. Dusk settled over the area, and night soon plunged the neighborhood into darkness. Except for the occasional street lamp, the area offered numerous darkened alcoves allowing Small to stay out of sight. A light on the second floor occasionally cast a shadow on the drawn drapes. The image appeared to be male. 
Small observed the shadow for several hours as it crossed the window numerous times during this period. Finally, at 10.34 p.m., the light extinguished. Patience kept Small in place as he waited. At 10.54, a darkened figure emerged from the front door. He turned toward the east and hurried toward the French Quarter. Keeping in the shadows, the former hitman followed until the figure arrived at a car parked in an alleyway. Using his cell phone, Small snapped a picture of the car with a clear shot of the license plate. As the car drove away, the ex-hitman retreated back to his SUV. With Claire at her sister's house, he avoided their home and stayed in a Hampton Inn several miles from the French Quarter. With a delivered pizza from a nearby Domino's as his dinner, he worked his cell phone talking to numerous contacts in Chicago. By 7 a.m. the next morning, he waited outside Captain Lance LeCompte's office with an extra coffee in his hand. When the surprised police officer unlocked his door, he took the offered coffee and said, What brings you to the station so early, Shorty? Need to know who a license plate belongs to. LeCompte raised an eyebrow. Why? Curiosity. I've heard that killed the cat. Small gave the captain a slight grin. Any suspects in the Jackson Square murder yet? No. Let me look at the security tapes surrounding Jackson Square the night of the murder. If I see what I believe I'll see, you'll have a suspect. I don't have time to play games this morning, Shorty. I'm playing a game. If my hunch is correct, you'll have a suspect as soon as you run this plate. But I need to look at the security tapes first. The captain nodded and led Small out of his office. At exactly 9.47 a.m., Small sat back from the monitor and stared at the image of a gray 10-year-old Honda Accord. The exact same car Small saw Dubois enter the night before. He had a print made from the video and returned to LeCompte's office. After he entered, he shut the door. Looking up from his desk, LeCompte removed his glasses and frowned. I'm not going to like what you're about to tell me, am I? Small shook his head and laid the picture of the Honda on the captain's desk and then showed him the photo of the car on his cell phone. Oh boy, who is it? We'll know as soon as the license plate is checked. Okay, before I do that, where was the picture on the cell phone taken? In an alleyway three blocks from Marcel Dubois' house. I followed him there until he got into the car. Are you implying Dubois is involved with the murders? I'm not implying anything. I'm just curious who owns the car he got in and why that same car was parked near Jackson Square at 2 a.m. in the morning, the same morning a decapitated body was found. Shorty, there are lots of reasons it could have been parked there. Small gave LeCompte a smile. I agree, it could be a coincidence. Let me guess, you don't believe in coincidences. No, they happen all the time. But this is not one. How long has Dubois been in New Orleans? I honestly don't know. He started making himself well known about six months ago. Why? Were you aware the woman you identified as the victim was a private investigator from Chicago? Yes. We were told she was here on vacation. When you told me her name the other day, it sounded vaguely familiar. I called a few old friends in Chicago last night. She was hired by a rich family to find him. Why? The murder of a billionaire and a missing hundred million dollars in the Windy City. The captain closed his eyes and took a deep breath. How did the billionaire die? Bled to death in a bathtub. LeCompte stared at Small for a long time. Finally, he picked up his desk phone and made a call. Sergeant, I need a plate, Ren. He recited the license number and waited silently for several minutes. I see. Thank you. He replaced the wireless phone in the receptacle and looked up at Small. The car is registered to an LLC called Louisiana Gold. Small remained quiet with a slight grin on his lips. The captain picked up the picture of the car from the security videos and studied it for a few moments. Why is that name so familiar? It's familiar because it's the same marketing company the tourism board is using to promote New Orleans. The company is owned by Marcel Dubois. They switched to it when he promised to donate millions to the board. Captain paused and tilted his head. 
Shorty, why did he put on such an elaborate dance to get you involved? To draw attention away from his involvement. My question is, how did a P.I. from Chicago figure out Dubois' true identity and end up butchered on a statue of Andrew Jackson in a very public place? LeCompte remained quiet. Captain, has the male victim been identified? No. He might have been random. Captain stood. I think it's time to NOPD had a word with Dubois. I'm taking this information to a judge. We'll have a search and seizure warrant issued and serve it tonight. With the search warrant scheduled to be served just before dusk, Small found the gray Honda parked where he photographed it the previous day. Making sure no one could see him, he removed his cold steel folding knife from his back pocket and punctured all four tires in the sidewall. He then returned to his spot to keep an eye on the exterior of Dubois' house. At exactly 8.05 p.m., police officers dressed in tactical gear surrounded the house and pounded on the front door. When no response came, an officer with a pry bar inserted it into the door and popped it open. Police swarmed in yelling for Dubois to surrender. Small watched from his position and started to move toward the house when he heard gunfire and yells from men under attack. He withdrew his Glock and ran toward the violent engagement. Fifty yards from the home's entrance, Small encountered a massive figure at least eight feet tall burst through the front door. It saw the retired hitman, snarled, and ran east. Taking a weaver's stance, Small fired two shots and then raced after the creature. Captain LeCompte toured the house belonging to Marcel Dubois. The body count stood at two officers dead, four critically wounded, and five with superficial injuries. Small stood in the living area watching EMTs attend to the survivors. The captain walked up to him and said, What did you see? The SWAT guys breached the door and then all hell broke loose. Before I could get to the door, something, not sure what, crashed through the door. I took a couple of shots at it and then followed. The thing had to duck to exit the door. My guess is he was at least eight foot tall. I know I hit it, but the bullets didn't seem to deter it. With a nod, the captain said, That confirms what the sergeant said. Whatever it was stood at least two feet taller than his men with a massive chest. Bigger than you. He paused. It cut through our guys like they weren't even there. Captain, I followed him to where the Honda was parked. And, well, someone had slashed the tires. LeCompte gave the big man a half grin. Gee, I wonder who did that? Small shrugged and continued. While he stood there trying to get into the car, I got off a few more shots. I didn't miss, but didn't see any wounds on him. He looked at me, snarled, and ran away. I lost him in the darkness. You're not going to tell me that thing was Dubois, are you? I got a good look at him while he stood under a street light. It resembled Dubois on the face. I can't tell the press that. Why not? Captain pursed his lips. Because no one will believe me and I don't want the public to panic. Looking out a window in the front room, Small pointed to a gaggle of news media types waiting for someone to give them a soundbite. Looks like you need to go out there and say something. Placing his hand on the damaged front door, LeCompte nodded. Yeah, let's just hope I still have a job when I get done. The eastern horizon glowed with the coming dawn when Small arrived at his and Claire's house. Driving by at a slow pace, he recognized something amiss, so he continued on without stopping. Parking the car in the street behind his home, he opened the storage compartment on the center console and extracted a box of ammunition given to him by Homer LaCroix a while back. He extracted the Glock 21's magazine and emptied the hollow point bullets currently loaded. After he placed one of the new bullets in the chamber, he loaded the magazine with 13 units of the special ammo. Exiting his SUV, he made his way through the yard of his back neighbor onto his rear patio. No lights were visible within his house. Dawn approached as he circled his home to verify his earlier observation. The front porch light lay broken and shattered next to the front door. With this confirmation, he returned to the side of the house and prepared to enter. Better to be the hunter than the hunted. Taking a deep breath, he realized he had an advantage over his quarry. 
he knew the interior better. With this in mind, he slipped into the door on the side of the garage. Quietly shutting the entry, he listened. In the darkness and still of the garage, he held his breath and detected nothing unusual. From his time as a hitman, he knew the sound of a man's breathing. He heard nothing. Small transversed the empty garage silently to the door to the kitchen. Placing his ear to the entrance, he detected no unusual noises. One of his monthly routines was applying WD-40 on all the hinges in the house. None squeaked, so opening the kitchen door made no discernible sound. The dim light of dawn seeped into the kitchen from windows over the sink and from the small breakfast nook on the opposite wall. He stood just inside, held his breath, and listened. The only sound he heard came from the refrigerator and a wall clock in the adjacent living area. With his finger just outside the trigger guard of his weapon, he advanced to the opening of the large room. He stood still again. The faint sound of ragged breathing could be heard on the other side. Standing with his back against the kitchen wall, he held the gun with one hand and prepared to flip on a light and hopefully startle the creature. Before he could do that, he heard a low growl and a deep-set voice say, I know you're in here, small. I can smell your fear. The ex-hitman knew not to respond. It would confirm his presence. He instead continued to hold the gun at ready and listen for any footfall he could detect. The beast moved and his foot fell on a loose board in the center of the living area, causing a slight squeak. Without hesitation, Small reacted. Knowing the location of the loose board, he emerged from behind the wall, pointed the Glock where he imagined the creature might be, and fired three quick shots. The being had already moved. Footfalls receded toward the bedroom areas of the house. When the interior grew quiet again, he heard a cackle. But it cannot hurt me, Shorty Small. You are trapped with nothing to defend yourself. Come and find me. <laughs> the cackle returned and then the house grew quiet. He mentally told himself he had eleven bullets left. He had to make them count. As he approached the hallway to the bedroom area, he stopped, smiled, and retreated to the small dining alcove. Walking down the hall would be a death trap. Instead, he secured himself behind a wall in the breakfast nook. Hey, Dubois, how long does the spell last? I bet you'll return to being human here soon. Then you'll be vulnerable to bullets. Why not come for me now and we can get this over with? The roar of the creature rattled the house as Small heard the massive footsteps running down the hall. The creature appeared, spread its arms, and charged at Small. The Glock fired five times. Police, EMTs, and the fire department converged on Shorty Small's modest house, and by eight in the morning, the medical professionals completed their work. Captain Lecompte watched as the paramedics loaded the body of Marcel Dubois onto a gurney for transfer to an ambulance. He then turned to Small. What happened? He charged at me and I fired. Shorty, there are footprints in the front flower bed that do not belong to a human. Plus, we found mud tracks on the carpet the same size. Small nodded. What was it? Another New Orleans mystery no one will ever admit to. Might be right. Our guys said that when they raided his house... They fired over 20 rounds into him and it didn't phase him. How did you succeed in bringing him down? The ex-hitman held up a bullet and handed it to the captain. I cheated. Lecomte took the object, studied it for a few seconds, and then returned his attention to Small. You used silver bullets? Shorty gave him a nod. How'd you know to do that? A ghost told me. I hope you enjoyed tonight's story, The Doppelganger, penned by J.C. Fields. J.C. Fields is an award-winning and Amazon best-selling author. He is a full member of the Missouri Writers Guild and is active in numerous other writing groups. His Sean Kruger series has won numerous awards, 
including multiple gold and silver medals in the reader's favorite international book contest. The Imposter's Trail was awarded Best Mystery Thriller at the 2017 Ozark Indie Book Fest. In March of 2020, his novel, A Lone Wolf, became a number one Amazon best-selling audiobook. His second novel in the series, The Last Insurgent, became a number one Amazon new release in January 2021. All of the aforementioned books can be found on audible.com, narrated by yours truly. If you'd like to learn more about J.C. Fields, you can reach out to him at jcfieldsbooks.com. That's J-C-F-I-E-L-D-S-B-O-O-K-S.com or bookbub.com slash authors slash j-c-fields. You can also reach him at facebook.com slash jcfieldsbooks. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland. <laughs>